Good morning, everyone. So Drew and I are getting to switch places today. Normally I'm doing what he did, normally he does what I do, and so here I am uh, with the pleasure to preach to you this morning. I have a question for you as we get started out. What was the first thought that ran through your head this morning? Was it, what day is it? Oh yeah, it's Sunday. Uh, is it, what am I going to eat for breakfast? Or, oh boy, my bacon's already grilling, I can smell it. For me, it was my cat scratching at the door, so my first thought was, dumb cat. Because <laughs> it's time for him to eat in the morning his little can of wet food. There's a quote by Dallas Willard I, I ran across, and it was pretty impactful, and I think it relates to what we're, I'm going to talk about today. It says this, few people arise in the morning as hungry for God as they are for cornflakes or toast and eggs. Now, it is not a measure of your relationship with God if your first thought in the morning is about him. That's, that's okay. But I want to ask a follow-up question. Is When is your first thought about God? Did you think about him the first time maybe when we walked in this morning? You see, the story we're going to look at today, the Israelites had totally forgotten about God, as though they, he wasn't a part of their life at all. In Numbers 13 and 14, which is where we're going to be today, this is the story that we read. And because they had forgotten, when conflict arose, they listened to the wrong voices. They had no idea what to actually do. And then their consequences from the actions that they did resulted in something happening for the rest of their lives that they really would have wished they had a second chance at. So the story in Numbers 13 and 14 is the story about the Israelites wandering around in the desert for 40 years. We're going to look at the story about why they had to go wander around in the desert. So the book of Numbers um, is kind of a boring title, if you think about it, like Numbers. Oh boy. If you are not good at math, you do not want to read the book of Numbers. We get that book, uh, the, the name of the book, because there are two censuses, or sensei. I'm actually not sure what the plural of census is. We debated about this Thursday night Bible study. We, we landed on sensei, but it just sounds weird. But there are two censuses, and that's where we get the book of Numbers. And they number the people as they're still on Mount Sinai to make a travel, uh, make a journey to Jerusalem, or to, not to Jerusalem, to the Promised Land. And then um, after they wander around 40 years, which is the story in Numbers, then there's another census before they go in to take it the second time around. The Hebrew name, I think, is way more cooler, Bamidbar which means in the wilderness. It does not mean numbers at all. So that's the story that, that we get at today. And in chapter 13, at the beginning, we read that Moses is going to send 12 scouts or 12 spies into the land, and they're supposed to come back and give a report on two things. First of all, uh, what's the land like? God promised us that it was going to be great. It was going to be flowing with milk and honey, very abundant. And so they wanted to know about that, and they also wanted to know about the people. Are, are, are the people strong? Are their cities fortified? It was essentially a military report. And these were the two things they were supposed to do. And when we get to this, the, the passage here in chapter 13, the people are named who go in and do it. And one of the reasons that they're named here is because these are all tribal leaders. They are respected people who are voices to trust. And that's key as we go on. So let's actually jump in and go ahead and read. Here's Numbers 13. We'll begin in verse 25 as the scouts return. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. 
and this is its fruit. They actually cut down some of the vine and brought it back with them. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the Jordan. So you see those two reports coming back, what the land is like and what the people were like, the military fortifications where these different people groups were. And Caleb, though, uh, starts to speak up because they were focusing on the bad news first, or sorry, the, the bad news like most. When you're given the option of hearing good news or bad news first, do you want to hear the bad news first? Good news first? It's kind of how about a church survey goes sometimes, five people raise their hand. I, <laughs> I, I tend to want to hear the bad news first so I can focus on, on, on the good. But here, they focus on, on the good first and with one verse, and then they get three sentences of bad news. And Caleb says, hold on, hold on. Like, let, let me remind you, verse 30 says, Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Caleb tries to, to remind them, in a sense, you remember, what, you remember why we're here, where we've come from? He's going to make a more impassioned speech later on, but he's essentially trying to remind them, do you remember what God did to Egypt, to the greatest army on the earth? He defeated them with nature, defeated them with a body of water. But the opposing voices come back in, they speak louder, and there's also more of them. So verse 31 says, Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. There we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. The last time we saw the Nephilim was back in Genesis 6, which I actually preached about way back in February. The Nephilim um, in that story is, are the fruit of these marriages. There's the sons of God. They look down, and they see daughters of men, and they decide that they look beautiful, and so they go and marry any of them who they chose. And then the fruit of that marriage was Nephilim. They are great and mighty warriors, strong, probably pretty tall. The name Nephilim means fallen ones. The idea is that they fell in battle because no great warrior wants to, wants to live to a good ripe age in the ancient Near East. They want to go out on the battlefield with a sword in their hand. So they're, they're given this title, the Nephilim, the fallen ones. Goliath, for example, which we're going to see here later on in, this, in the, the biblical story, is a, he can, could be considered a, a Nephilim. And he is described as four and a half cubits tall. A cubit is about 18 inches. So do the math, six and a half feet is about how tall Goliath is, four and a half cubits. Now I, on a good day, am 6'4". That's what I was listed at, at least in my, my uh, sports programs, football high, and, and basketball in high school. 6'3", more realistically. So I'm only three inches shorter than Goliath theoretically was. Now imagine Karina up here. She's about this tall. That's where her microphone is. She's about 5'4", and that's the average height of an Israelite person, of, of a typical ancient Near East person. Imagine if you are 5'4", and you're going up against an NFL football team with nothing but swords and spears and shields. Would you be intimidated? You certainly would. Can you start to see yourself in the, in, in the shoes of these 10 spies now? Even though they had forgotten, their, their fear of these people was legit. But Caleb says, hang on, have you forgotten what God's done in Egypt? We can surely go and take it. 
Remember what, what he's done. Remember how he's been with us this whole time. They had forgotten the basis of their salvation, that God had saved them out of slavery. And as we're going to see here in a little bit, they wanted to go back. They wanted to go back into slavery. And we think, how could they? Surely if I was there, if I would have seen the Red Sea crossing, I wouldn't have been so faithless. I would have trusted. We have the benefit today of knowing how the story plays out. If you were in those shoes, you would not have been so sure. You would definitely not have understood um, like what, what God wanted to do with you. There would have been some questions in your mind for sure. Even in, in today, today's day and age, we, as a, as a Christ follower, we've been set free from slavery to, to, to evil, to death, to sin. And we're now living for life. But that jail cell that we ran out of, as the house of the Lord says, we were the prisoners and now we're running free. That jail cell sometimes looks really attractive. Because our world tries to pull us back. Hey, do you remember what this was like? Do you remember just watching Netflix for hours on end? Do you remember how comforting that was? You're two clicks away from looking at something on the internet you shouldn't have. Come on, do you remember how nice that was? And these things just draw us back. And before we know it, we put ourselves back in shackles, just like the Israelites wanted to now. We can't forget about what, has, what God has done for us because our old ways of how we used to live are constantly hounding us, wooing us, trying to get us to adopt them again. If you forget, then you let the wrong voices start to speak into your life and the wrong voices start to take control. And that's what we see in chapter 14. These 10 scouts, remember, they're tribal leaders. Their voices are to be respected. And this is the situation that they have caused. Chapter 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Things are escalating towards a mutiny. Moses and Aaron have a big problem on their hands because of the report of these ten spies. So if you know that song, it's ten were bad and two were good. I've tried to convince Joyce to sing it, but she won't. It's like a vacation Bible school song for kids. There's ten were bad. We're about to meet the second good guy, who's Joshua, here in a minute. And in verse 6, we see that Joshua and Caleb have this impassioned speech, trying to, to speak into them. The correct voice to listen to was them. Here's what they say. Verse 6, And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes, a great sign of distress. And said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. That's a great speech, but it had no effect. The Israelites had already gone down the path listening to the wrong voices. Verse 10 says, Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But, here's the key, the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. 
Now, the glory of God showing up right here is a big deal. Um, To understand the context of where these conversations might be taking place, here's how the Israelite camp was laid out. We read this at the beginning of Numbers. The tabernacle was in the center, presence of God, uh, what was there with them. And then around that temple, or the the tabernacle, were the priests, uh, the, the Levites, who were in charge of taking care of the tabernacle. And then the rest of the 12 tribes were arranged in, in groups of three. So three to the north, three to the south, three to the east, and three to the west. So at the center of all this is God's presence, is the tabernacle, is the communal place where surely this was all happening. They saw the presence of God. It hadn't departed the tabernacle. The cloud of, of, of fire by night and cloud by day, what was there, a stone's throw away from all this, where all this was happening. And so another way of translating the word here appeared, the glory of the Lord appeared, is God was seen. So God, I imagine this is a Wizard of Oz type thing. It's like you have the green face. I'm from Kansas, obviously, so I know a lot about the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> You, you have this like magic green face, and then you have the pyrotechnics that are going up on the side. And when Toto runs behind that little curtain, and, and people start to go peek, he's like, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, and he th- throws lovers and pyrotechnics, notice me, notice me. That's what I imagine this scene is like. God's presence just lights up with his glory, with his presence. His fire just radiates, reminding the people that he's there. And what plays out next is actually a shot-for-shot remake of a scene that has played out already on Mount Sinai, where Moses is going to uh, try to intercede for the people, because God wants to start over with Moses. He's like, I'm done with these people. I want to start over with you, Moses. You're a good guy. I'll make you into the new Abraham, essentially. But Moses says, hang on, what would the Canaanites think? What would the Israelites, or what would the, what would the, the uh, Egyptians think? That you just brought us out here to die? You see, Moses actually reminds God of his character, which I find a little bit comical, maybe uncomfortable. But what we find here in in this next passage in verse 18 is really one of the most important verses, important concepts about God that we can see. So this is Moses talking to God, reminding him of what he said in the past. So here's Numbers 14. I'll start in verse 17, and then we'll focus in on verse 18. And now... Please let the power of the Lord be as great as you have promised, saying, and then Moses quotes God's words back at him, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. So let's dive into a couple of these words. Uh, Slow to anger. The literal Hebrew behind this is long of nostril. It's my favorite. When you get mad, can you imagine yourself breathing like hard through your nose? (laughs) Right? So your nose burns hot. In Hebrew, if your nose burns hot, that means you're getting mad. So if you have a long fuse on your nose, that means that you are slow to anger. You are long of nostril. This is the characteristic ascribed to God. That was for free. That doesn't pertain a whole lot, but it's just really fun. The second one is is where, where I'll look at a bit closely. Abounding in steadfast love is the ESV translation. Um, this Hebrew word, it's, it's pronounced chesed, um, and it's, it, there's a lot of different uh, ways it's translated, like abounding love, steadfast love, covenantal faithfulness, loyal love, a lot of different ways. When it's applied to God, it's a bit more narrow. Let me simplify it this way. It is part of God's character that when he makes a promise, he keeps it. This is chesed. So God made a promise to Abraham, And a covenant promise, God made a promise to the Israelites, a covenant promise, 
And because God is chesed, in the Bible, God is loyal and loving for no other reason than it's just who God is. Let me say that again. God is loyal and loving for no reason. He had plenty of reasons with the Israelites, but for no reason other than than that's just who God is. God's chesed, or loyal love, is actually what caused him to come down to earth in Jesus and be for us humans what we could not be for ourselves. We cannot be chesed. We cannot have this covenantal faithfulness. There's something about us that, that we are unable to do that. There's an evil that has power over us, and we cannot do it ourselves. And so God comes down and says, okay, I'll do it myself. That's Jesus. That is what the gospel is. God is chesed. We can't do that, so he does it himself. And this, this blows my mind. That's another sermon in itself. For our purposes, we, we have to go on. The next one is that God is naturally forgiving. He, he wants to forgive people. But what's a little bit uncomfortable in that is that he allows the, he, he visits the iniquity of the fathers upon children to the third and fourth generations. Now, if it sits a little bit uncomfortable with you of why this happens, let me frame it in, in this way. Your great-grandparent is the fourth generation above you. So you've got you, parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, fourth generations. How many of you know your great-grandparents or knew your great-grandparents? Some of you, I see a couple hands, but do you, know, do you know what they did? Do you know a lot about them? Probably not. That what they did, good or bad, doesn't really affect you. What about your grandparents? Most, a lot of, more of you probably know your grandparents, and you know more of what they did, good or bad. Both my grandparents were farmers. That doesn't affect me. I'm not a farmer anymore, but it affected my childhood for sure. What about your parents? Do their actions, good or bad, affect you? Oh, yeah. If, especially if you had a, a poor relationship with a parent, whether they were abusive or something else, that really, really affects you. But here's the key. You don't have to let that affect your children. You can make the choice to stop that negative, those negative actions with you. Every single generation has a choice about whether or not you will allow the sins of the people above you, of your parents, your, your grandparents, to affect those under you. And so by the time you get through four generations, if, if everyone has decided to stop that sin, stop that evil, it no longer affects you. And there's a passage in Exodus where, where Moses is quoting these words that God says. There's another part that he doesn't say here, but it says that, God, you desire to show your chesed, your loyal love, to thousands of generations, whereas the sins of the fathers only affect three to four. You see how much more the effect of salvation is for people rather than the iniquity and the sins of the father. So Moses reminds God of his character. And then, get this, God forgives them. This is another thing that blows my mind. It's that God, God forgives them. There's no evidence in the scripture about the Israelites repenting or asking for forgiveness, but they are forgiven because of what God has done and because of what his promise was. But he does not stop the consequences of their disobedience. And we read about this in verse 20 of chapter 14. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, none of those people who did any of that shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. 
and none of those who despised me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit, has followed me fully, and I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. So Caleb, and later we see Joshua, are the only people of this generation who are actually going to enter the promised land. This is the consequence of this entire generation of people. 25 says, Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. Turn around. Because you were listening to the wrong voices and do not trust me, you are not allowed to go into the promised land. Your children will have the next choice to do that. And that's a tough pill to swallow. But you see, God allows us the dignity of this choice. If we choose to turn away from God and do things our own way and completely go our own route, he will honor that choice to the bitter end. But if we turn around, and there's a word for this, repent, and start walking towards God, no matter how far we are down that path, we are now in the covenant love of God, and we are of his people. It doesn't matter if you were born and you immediately went that way, or if you've been walking this way your entire life, if you choose to turn around today, you will be in the covenant love of God. Each generation, you have a chance to listen to the right voice. Remember that Numbers is about these two generations, one that has fear, one that has faith. Shout out to my boy Eddie for those two words, putting it that way, fear and faith. One generation that listened to the wrong voices, one generation that that listened to the right voice. This is your choice today. Will you listen to the right voice? Have you listened to the right voice? Can you listen to the right voice? Have you ever heard the voice of God? You see, I think there's something that's deep within us that we, we struggle listening to the voice of God. That there's all other kinds of influences that, that will come at us from, from many different sides. Like, we're so politically divisive in our, in our world. Do, do you just listen to one of those voices? Just listen to one party. Do you listen to just one news outlet, Fox News, CNN? Do you listen to multiple? Try to discern the truth. That's a healthy thing to do because those voices probably are not listening to God first and giving their due diligence to him before they deliver information to you. Did you know that on social media, if you watch one video or click on one link from this certain website with this certain perspective, that Facebook and other social media websites will feed you 10 more? So over time, your Facebook feed, your social media feed just becomes your perspective, and you think that nobody else thinks any differently, but that is definitely not the case. Social media is really good at helping us find people who are like us and solidifying this one stance and ignoring the rest of them out there. And we know that we should listen to the voice of God, and yet all these other things are coming at us. I would venture guess that most of us probably don't have a great practice of listening to the voice of God. If you do, then, then praise God. You have some, something to teach the rest of us. Uh, I have definitely been growing in this. Um, when I try to do my, I have devotions actually in the evening. I have my, my quiet time, as we Christians call it, in the evening. Uh, but I like to also play video games in the evening. And there have been, I'll admit, far too many times where my alarm and my phone goes off at 10.30, and I'm right in the good part of the video game, and I can't just stop it. So I'm like, I'll finish it. Okay, 20 minutes went by. And now I'm, I'm really falling asleep. 
It's like, what, what, why do I want to do that? Why? So I, I have room to grow as well. I imagine every one of you does as well. Maybe it's, it's something like that for you, but here's where I want to, to spend some time digging. Um, we live in an instant culture, in everything. Like, you get instant mashed potatoes, you can get delicious Kraft macaroni and cheese in 10 minutes. There's streaming on demand. Uh, we even have same-day shipping now. This has been new. Have you noticed this? Amazon, you can get a package like the same day now. That wasn't the same when I moved here. And again, when I'm back in Kansas, we were lucky to get it on the third or fourth day. But now we get it the same day. Heaven forbid I have to go to the store anymore, right? Amazing culture times we live in. But it's an instant culture, and this leaks into our relationship with God, probably without many of us really knowing it. Have you ever had this situation where there's something big coming up in your life where you're like, I should probably talk to God about this. And so you go and you, you, you close the door, you light a candle, turn on some soft music, get your Bible situated just right, and then you sit and you pray, ask God about what to do with this thing, and he doesn't say anything? Have you had this experience? I know I have. When Karina and I were trying to make some big decisions about jobs to take, places to move, this is what we did, and we didn't hear God speak to us. And I used to think one way about it, but I'm wondering if there's something different about that. And here's what I mean. Relationships do not work when you call up somebody once in a blue moon and say, hey, I need some cash. Can you give it to me? That's not a relationship. If we claim to have a relationship with our Savior, I think he feels when that's how this relationship works. Because after one time, if you've given up, oh, it didn't work. One time, I need it instantly, God. That's not how a relationship works. Who's your best friend? How did you come to be their best friend? Or for them to be your best friend? Probably, for, for me, it was someone who I spent four years living in close proximity with in college. Or someone who, who I went to church with for six years. We were in the same small group. We hung out together every Friday night. That turned into uh, Sunday afternoon lunch. That turned into sports events, guys night, girls night, all this stuff. Those are my best friends. People who I spent time with. Your relationship with God works the same way. I've started reading a book. Um, it's called The Secrets of the Secret Place. And the, the, the author shared a story at the beginning that was really impactful. And I'll share it with you now. It was a couple that were in the same boat, the same situation that I just described to you. And so, so they put their kid to bed early. They sat down together and, and were praying to God. Um, it was financial advice. Some, some big decision they wanted to make. And so they were praying, asking God to speak to them. And they heard this audible voice call out, in case of emergency, dial 911. In case of emergency, dial 911. It rang out about five times. They open their eyes, look around, what is that? I think it's coming from the garage. So they go out, kind of creeping out, because this shouldn't have happened, turn on the lights. They see their son's toy fire truck sitting on the garage floor that had fallen and probably triggered this thing to say. So they pick it up, say, in case of emergency, dial 911. And then something nudged them to translate those numbers, 911, into 911. And the only book of the Bible that has 91 chapters is Psalms. And so they came here and they read, who dwells, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. What they figured out was that this was not financial advice, but rather an invitation to meet with God more often. 
an invitation to spend more time with God so they can hear his voice better and get to know how this relationship works. Another Dallas Willard quote, it is much more important to cultivate the quiet inward space of a constant listening than to always be approaching God for specific direction. This is what God wants. He wants us. He wants you. You want to get to know the Savior of the universe. I sure do. Now, I I hope that this is encouraging to you and not disheartening, because if you've had this experience where you go and try to listen to God and he doesn't talk to you and you've given up, guess what? Come back again, there'll be a better chance. Come back again, there'll be a better chance. Come back again, there'll be a better chance. And over time, all of a sudden, what you might find to happen is that you naturally seem to do things that work out for you. Because the more time you spend with someone, the more you become like them. I think my mom does this. When she goes to the South, she adopts a Southern accent really fast. Like, she just does it. When you spend time in a specific place and with a specific person, you start to become like them. This is what God wants. God wants you, my friends. If there's anything that I would love for each of us to do after this message and this service today is to go home and find out how am I going to push back these distractions and commit time, more time, weekly, daily, to spend time with God, to get to know his voice. And there's one more thing that I want to bring to your attention. There's a way that you can experience God right now in this place before you leave. And we offer it to you every Sunday. It's communion. Sitting over here on the tables to your left and right. During the last song, even after the service, I will often say it's, it's, it's really powerful when your body, when you make your body line up with what your spirit is thinking. There's something powerful when those two things merge. And one way to do that is to go and take communion. Now, why, how do I experience God's presence in communion? There, there's a specific idea about God that's called omnipresence. This means that, that God is like everywhere at all times. And it kind of blows your mind when you think about it, but, but here's what that means. If I go and take communion, I have the same God, the Holy Spirit within me, that was also with Jesus in the upper room, when he first gave it to his disciples. There's something unique about communion itself, a reason why Jesus wanted us to participate in that, that, is, that transcends time and trans, transcends space, and you are communing with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, when you approach that table. So I dare you. Or if you've seen the Christmas story, I triple dog dare you. <laughs> And this is a loving dare, by the way. There's not going to be any judgment if you don't. But if you want to commune with God, don't care about what anyone else thinks. You go and you meet with God. See, the Israelites had the presence of God with them, but they had forgotten. You have the presence of God right here in your midst right now. If you have never accepted God as part of your life, you can do that. No matter how far down this path you are, you can turn around and be in his covenant today. If that sounds interesting to you, we would love to talk with you. I think there'll be a prayer team over in the corners as well, either now during this last song or after the service. God's presence is here. Don't forget about what he has done. And if you want to experience the presence of God, then you go do it. There's nothing holding you back. God is with you. Take the time to hear his voice. Let's pray.